Is it just me or do movies like that make you cry too? Who's with me? Yeah, let's just be honest. Well, hey, good morning, friends. A special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. If that's you, I am so thrilled that you picked today to be here. Uh, we're wrapping up a three-week series called Locker Room. Um, and, and if you think about it, uh, we called it Locker Room because of what happens in locker rooms. Uh, what I want to do is take a few weeks this fall uh, and sort of give you a locker room pep talk of sorts. Uh, locker rooms are those places where coaches remind their teams and refocus their teams and re-envision their teams on what matters most. And, and Keystone isn't exactly a team, and I'm far from a coach, thank you, but the locker room time really is healthy for any organization. And so what I want to do uh, today is remind you, give you one more of the reasons why Keystone started and what we're here for. And I also want to talk to you about how you can be a part of where we go from here, whether, again, this is your first week or you've been here since the very beginning. Uh, Keystone started almost 25 years ago with a dream. A group of friends in Ada, Cascade, Forest Hills came together and decided that our community needed a different sort of church, one that would meet people wherever they were on the journey of life, uh, whoever they were, whatever they had done, whatever their doubts or concerns, would meet them in that place and invite them to find and follow Jesus. Uh, in other words, we wanted to create a place that would be a welcoming place for everyone to find and follow Jesus. That's the part of our strategy that we explored the first week of this series. And if you're new around here and you missed it, please go back and listen on the podcast, I explained kind of where we got that particular aspect of our strategy. Uh, then last week, we spent some time talking about why we place so much value on you doing faith with friends. Uh, it's part of our strategy we call Wonder Together. And when you read those accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and then you read the letters that make up the New Testament, one of the things that is really, really clear is that Jesus never intended his followers to pursue their faith alone. Uh, he knew something that any of us who have tried to do faith alone have discovered, and it goes like this. Community is catalytic to doing what we believe we should do. It's really easy to sit in a row and get an idea and go, man, I should really do that, or I should at least think about doing that. But when you place yourself not just in a row, but in a circle of other Jesus followers who are trying to do faith as well, it's amazing how you end up actually doing some of the things that you really want to do, but often talk yourself out of if you do it all by yourself. And I ended last week by inviting you all to take a test drive with a small group. If you're not currently in a group here at Keystone, you can test drive a group. We have an event uh, that's coming up called Group Connect, and a whole bunch of you signed up. It's October 1st, 7 to 8.30, right here at Keystone. You get to come. There'll be food. There'll be some fun. And you'll actually find yourself in a group having a conversation that night. If that is not enough to convince you to come, I have been recruited to DJ the event. And I was a DJ for 15 years, so the beat is going to drop something fierce, okay? So you don't want to miss that. So if for no other reason, just come for the one night, you'll have a good time. Anyway, uh, with our time today, we get to focus on the third and final aspect of Keystone's strategy. We call it work for change. And basically, this work for change idea flows out of the idea that we believe the church should be known for the problems it solves and the people it helps rather than the criticism it dispenses. You just drop the mic and walk off right there, right? The church should be known by the, for the problems it solves and the people it helps rather than the criticism it dispenses. And it's a great idea. Some of you are like, where did you get that idea? It's another one of those ideas that comes directly from Jesus. And today I want to show you what I mean. And to get us going, I want to do something a bit fun, a bit unique. I want you to imagine that you and I have access to a time-traveling DeLorean. 
from the greatest movie of all time, Back to the Future, right? I took this picture of my three youngest at the Grand Rapids Auto Show last year. And what I love about it, of course, you got Doc and Marty, and then, I don't know, Wilson's just riding a hoverboard, which is cool. But um, my favorite part of this memory is that Colton, my eight-year-old, looks inside the DeLorean and looks at the attendant or the car guard or whatever he was doing, and he says, where's the flux capacitor? If you've seen the movie, you know the flux capacitor <laughs> is what makes time travel possible, and it's really important if you're going to have a Back to the Future car that has a flux capacitor. The guy looks back and he says, well, hold on a second, and he goes on his phone and he puts out a picture of a flux capacitor, and he looks at my eight-year-old who is very quick and says, we made an app for the flux capacitor. And as we're walking away, Colton looks up at me and says, Dad, there is absolutely no way that that app works. Which I just think is just awesome. So anyway, I want you to imagine that you and I have access to a real time-traveling DeLorean, and we get to visit a place I've always wanted to see, ancient Rome, in the year 82 AD. And I want to take you there because I want you and I to experience the Roman Empire in its prime. It was the global military superpower, and the city of Rome was, for all practical purposes, the capital of the world. Now, as soon as we get there, um, I realize that we are a bit fortunate. Ancient Romans spoke two languages. They spoke Latin and then a little Greek. And the reason that's a good thing is that I took three years of Greek in seminary. The bad news is I forgot almost all of it. But for the sake of the illustration, let's imagine that you and I are completely fluent in both languages. And by uh, in landing in 82 AD, uh, we find ourselves going to the center of the city of Rome, the Roman Forum. Here's a picture of today uh, in the Roman Forum. And the Roman Forum was the center of day-to-day -day life in the city. And I want you to imagine that it's packed with people and they greet us and they learn that we're from the future and news quickly spreads through the city that this group of travelers from the future has found themselves in ancient Rome. Matter of fact, word makes all the way up the chain to the Roman emperor, a man named Domitian. And he immediately sends for someone to invite us to have dinner with him in another famous Roman, uh, Roman spot, the Colosseum. And you've probably seen pictures of the Colosseum, but this isn't the Colosseum that we know. This is the Colosseum on the day that was the conclusion of the Olympic Games. And there are people feasting everywhere. And there is wine everywhere. And there are people celebrating victories and defeats everywhere, but everyone is having a good time. And you look at me as if to say, boy, this is really great timing. I mean, what are the odds that we land right at the end of the Olympic Games? And then you remember that we had a time machine and I picked the day. Thank you, right? Uh, they escort us to the VIP entrance to the Colosseum and upon seated, being seated in the presence of the Roman emperor, we sort of take in the whole of what we're about to experience. We see Domitian sitting on his throne surrounded by his bodyguards and they are armed heavily and we think we better be a little careful what we talk about. Um, and as we begin to dine um, on the meats, we notice that there are exotic meats. We're not familiar with them. And in fact, not only is there wine, there's enough wine to float a ship. <laughs> and you think to yourself, man, I, I, can we just get some water? And I stop you and I remind you that in ancient Rome, the water would have probably killed you. So you decide to maybe just pass and go thirsty. Um, and after we eat, Domitian motions for us to come closer for a conversation. He wants to know what happens to the Roman Empire. I mean, we're from the future, and he wants to know, like, we're on this, he, from his perspective, the Roman Empire is an unstoppable force, and so what becomes of it in 2019? And, and so he asks me, and because I took church history, and I start to talk, and I said, well, actually, if you want to know what happens to the Roman Empire in 2019, we actually have to start in your past. 
And on the way to the Colosseum, and we, we walked under an arch, it's called the Arch of Titus. Here's a picture of it. Um, it had been constructed a few years before, and it was said, Mr. Domitian, you know, by your, your late brother. And it was to celebrate the victory of Rome over the Jewish people in 70 AD. And so just 12 years earlier, Rome had rolled over Israel and basically leveled the whole country, including the temple in Jerusalem. In doing so, they believed that they had completely destroyed the God of the Jews. But I said, you know, it's, here's the thing. Um, you know the temple was destroyed, Mr. Domitian. What you don't realize is that the Jewish God is as alive and well as ever. And that's maybe interesting to you, but what's more interesting is that the Roman Empire itself will eventually embrace the Jewish God as their God and will turn away from the worship of all the other gods. In fact, an emperor a few down, a few ahead of you is actually going to outlaw all pagan sacrifice and tear down pagan temples all over the empire. Rome eventually worships the God of the Jews. And at this point, Domitian leans forward and he says, uh, boy, that seems impossible. Like, how, how, how can that be? And in response, I said, well, the answer to that question, you got to go back even farther than 70 AD. You got to go back, you got to go back about 50 years because 50 years ago in the Roman territory of Judea, that would be Israel to us, a man named John the Baptist emerged and he proclaimed that the God of the Jews was about to do something in the world for the world. And he announced that God had sent the long awaited King of the Jews, someone they called the anointed one or the Messiah. And shortly thereafter, shortly after John made that made that prediction, a man named Jesus appeared on the scene and he, he began to teach like no man had ever taught. He announced the arrival, of, uh, the arrival of something he called the kingdom of God. And it was a kingdom not of this world, but a kingdom that would touch down in this world and then influence the entire world. And eventually this Jesus got sideways with the Jewish religious leaders. They saw him as a threat to their establishment, which he was. And so they had him arrested and condemned and crucified. And, and that should have been the end of the story, but it was actually the beginning because a few days after Jesus' crucifixion, his tomb was found open and empty. And then almost immediately, there were rumors that Jesus had been seen and not just in Jerusalem, but all over Israel. First individuals, then groups, then hundreds of people claimed that Jesus was alive. And his resurrection galvanized the courage of his first followers and they spread the news that the kingdom of God had come. A kingdom not of this world, but a kingdom for this world. A kingdom that operated with different rules. A kingdom in which Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, was king. And they immediately ran into all sorts of trouble and Jesus' closest followers were arrested and beaten and many were put to death. But, but their confidence was contagious because it wasn't based on what they simply believed. It was based on what they had seen, what they had touched. Jesus was alive. And then I would say, you know, Mr. Emperor, you know that all over the ancient city of Rome, there are gatherings of Christians and, and they're different than the rest of Roman society. And they probably drive you crazy because they're gatherings around this idea that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the son of the living God. And it's made up of Roman citizens and slaves and men and women, and, and they're one anothering one another. They're living by a different set of rules. And say, so, well, you know, for the next 230 years, the Roman Empire will try to stamp out the followers of Jesus, but these efforts will fail. And though Jesus never visited the city of Rome, by 2019, his name and symbol and likeness will be all over the city. And, and as for you, Mr. Emperor, uh, you and every other emperor will be largely forgotten with just one exception, a man by the name of Caesar Augustus. 
And Caesar Augustus was a great emperor, but he won't be remembered for the great things he did when he was an emperor. His name will come up in 2019 in homes and in churches all over the world every December or January, if you're in the East, right? Because his name is connected to the birth of Jesus. And so as impossible as it sounds to you, Mr. Emperor, Jesus will be the most influential man who ever lived. And your empire will eventually cease to be. And then I sit down and there's silence. And you look at me like, you are so dumb. We are in so much trouble. Because these words not only are unimaginable to Domitian, these words are offensive to him. And Domitian's guards, you kind of notice they're, they're reaching for their swords and we're trying to find the nearest exit. And then uh, the tension breaks. A smile breaks across Domitian's face and he bursts into laughter and he holds up a cup of wine and he offers a toast to the brilliant storytellers from the future, right? Because, he says, you had me right up to the end. And then he says, I insist that you join me again tomorrow night, but no more stories. I want the truth. I want to know what happens to the glorious Roman Empire. To Domitian... What actually happened would have been unimaginable. What happened was something nobody could have planned, but this is where this gets fun. What happened was exactly what Jesus predicted. The day he walked his disciples north of the Sea of Galilee, about 60 miles to a town called Caesarea Philippi, and there that day, surrounded by a group of teenage boys with no hope and no future, a group without privilege, a group that lived in this unenviable position of being sandwiched between the impressive Roman Empire and the corrupt religious leaders of the Jewish temple. Jesus looked his followers in the eyes and he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Gates of Hades is a fancy way of saying death itself. My church will be unstoppable. And I think the disciples looked back at him and thought, you know, they're standing there in the sunshine like, Jesus, this is crazy talk. We have no power. We have no authority. You picked 12 guys, right? And when most of us are teenagers and we, we don't have any influence, we don't have any resources. There's no way. But Jesus meant what he said. And his church proved to be an unstoppable force. And it still is. It still is. It's still moving. It's still advancing in every land, in every generation, and no one could have imagined it, but against all odds, it happened. As I was preparing, I happened upon a quote in a book that was actually audibling it for the sake of transparency, but it's a book called 12 Rules for Life, runaway bestseller, uh, Jordan Peterson. He looks like a lot of fun, not really. Um, anyway... <laughs> I was like, the photographer was just having a bad day or he was having a bad day. But anyway, midway through the book, he says this. I thought this was great. He says, Christianity achieved the well-nigh impossible. The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul, placing slave and master and commoner and nobleman alike on the same metaphysical footing, rendering them equal before God and the law. Unprecedented in the ancient world and really in human history. Next slide. He goes on, the implicit transcendent worth of each and every soul established itself against impossible odds. It's nothing short of a miracle that the hierarchical slave-based societies of our ancestors reorganized themselves under the sway of an ethical religious revelation such that the ownership and absolute dominion of another person came to be viewed as wrong. 
And the next statement was actually the reason I wanted to include the quote because to us what has become so normal and natural isn't normal and natural at all. Here's what he says. We forget the opposite was self-evident through most of human history. The society produced by Christianity was far less barbaric than the pagan, even the Roman, which at the time they thought was pretty progressive, even the Roman ones that replaced. We forget that the opposite was self-evident throughout most of human history, which raises an interesting question. What was natural for most of human history? I'm so glad you asked. I made a list. Here was the uh, human society's unquestioned rules of order leading up to uh, Jesus' arrival on the planet. Number one, the biggest and strongest and most powerful did whatever they wanted to do. And number two, you would only help people who had the ability to help you back. Number three, you would only serve people who could return the favor. Number four, you'd only be generous to those with the ability to bless you in return. And, and number five, you would only love people who were lovable. And that's kind of like, well, yeah, duh, right? But Jesus, 2,000 years ago, walks into the middle of that culture and announces a new way of doing life, a life lived by the rules of a new kingdom that was unlike anything that came before it. His followers were, were taught, um, and they assumed a different sort of relational posture towards other people based on the teachings of Jesus. Here's what Jesus told his followers one day. He said, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? He's not saying that's a bad thing, but he says, even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Again, that's not a bad thing to do. He's like, that's just like baseline, right? You, I mean, even sinners do that. Even people that have no faith do that. He goes on. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you, right? And you're like, yeah, I've been saying that to the bank for years. And they just keep sending me bills. I don't know, right? Yeah. Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. He's like, that's really not... That's really not that, that big a deal. He says, okay, but, so Jesus, okay, that's the baseline. What, what do you want us to do? Well, he tells us as he can do. He says, but love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And you're like, time out, Jesus. And believe me, 2,000 years ago, this seemed even crazier than it does today. Jesus, that's not how the world works. And Jesus says, you're right. That's not how the world works. But I'm going to show you how the world is supposed to work. I'm going to show you a new way and a bigger way and a brighter way and a better way. And you're going to turn away from those natural impulses that you've picked up from your own broken nature and also from taking cues from the culture around you. That means love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. He continues. He says, then, then, he says, your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And then he says, be merciful, just as your father is merciful. He's like, if, if you cannot muster the courage to try this, you need to remember, these are the rules of the kingdom and the king led the way. This isn't a king like you've ever experienced. This isn't a king that lords authority over others. This is a servant king. He showed you mercy first. He showed you undeserved grace first. And he, then he said, follow me. And so from this, I see that Jesus wants his followers to be marked by a radical, sacrificial sort of love. He wants them to be people of compassion and generosity who give of their time, who give of their treasure without expecting anything in return. Jesus wants his followers to do, do things for those who can't return the favor, to give and share and serve with people we don't even like. 
He says that's practically how you live in the kingdom of God here and now. And this generosity that taught by Jesus was something so revolutionary in the ancient world. And I would argue it's no less revolutionary today. In essence, Jesus was shifting the world's concept of love. And he reiterates it the night he gathers his followers for a final meal where he celebrates the Last Supper, that famous meal. And uh, at the beginning of that meal, Jesus enters um, and does something that none of them would have been expecting. He actually gets down and washes his disciples' feet. And as he washed their feet, then he said to them, I want you to do the same for others. And here's the thing, after the resurrection, they did. They assumed the posture of a servant in the ancient world. They began to clothe the needy, take food to the hungry, take water to the thirsty. They began to visit people in prisons, invite strangers to dinner. Over and over and over and over and over again, they worked to bring the change that their world so desperately needed. They understood something that so many forget, that to take Jesus seriously is to engage life by repeatedly asking the question, how can I help? How can I serve? How can I bring the change my culture needs? Followers of Jesus are to be working for positive change in the world. It's been that way since the beginning. And here's where this gets really exciting. When they do, then the world starts to see what Jesus is like. They see what it looks like to imperfectly, because none of us do this 100% correctly, but they see what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. Of God. And for the three, first 300 years of Christianity, this is exactly what they did. They went out into the world with a brand of Christianity or a brand of generosity that the world had never seen. And the world was watching and they were captured by this new sort of love that had somehow come to the planet and they couldn't help but be drawn to it. And in the year 325, the Emperor Constantine declares Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, something that in 82 AD to Emperor Domitian would have been unthinkable, which brings us back to here and now, because 25 years ago, a group of friends on the southeast side of Grand Rapids launched something new in our community, for our community, a church called Keystone that sought to admittedly imperfectly try to embody the sort of thing that Jesus had in mind when he talked about his church, a church that would be a welcoming place for anyone to find and follow Jesus, a church that would intentionally connect people with other people who were seeking to grow in their faith, a church that would strive to be known for the problems we solve and the people we help instead of the criticism we dispense. And so here's what I'm inviting you to consider, whether you've been with us for 25 minutes or 25 years. Will you engage with your church as we continue to build something that as best as we can discern reflects what Jesus had in mind? Against all odds, the church changed the world once, and there still is a great deal about our world that needs to be changed. And with your help, perhaps we can be a small part of bringing that change. As we sort of land the series today and land our time together, we are going to take communion. And so the band's going to come in a minute and we're going to um, enjoy a song together. Uh, and you'll have an opportunity to come and remember, remember what Jesus did for you.
that he came for you because he loved you and that he gave up his life on the cross to rescue you, to redeem you, to restore you to right standing with God. Not because of your worthiness, but because of his love for you. And he extends an invitation and then he just asks, will you accept? And if that's you, if you've had that moment where you've said yes to Jesus, you're welcome to come and to take uh, communion with us. Um, You don't need to be a member at Keystone. We don't have membership. Um, All we ask is that you've said yes to the invitation of Jesus. And if you're here and you're still kicking the tires and you're wondering and you're questioning, you need to know we are so honored you're with us. You are the reason Keystone started in many ways. And so we couldn't be more thrilled that you're with us. And if you need to take a pass with communion, please do. There's no judgment in this place. Um, But the night that Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends, he had that final meal. He'd washed the disciples' feet. And then he took common elements and infused them with uncommon meaning. He took a loaf of bread, and he lifted it up, and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which will soon be broken for you. And then he held up a cup of wine, and he said, this cup represents a new covenant, a new arrangement, a new testament in my blood. And it will soon be spilled for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, when you gather, and when you do this, when you gather around the bread, when you gather around the cup, remember me. Remember what you've been rescued from. Remember what you've been rescued for because you're a people, a redeemed people who have been given a mission to bring change to the world and to show the world a better way of life, a life lived in the kingdom of God. So I'm gonna pray for us um, and there's some stations around the room. You can come up uh, whenever you're ready and take of the wine and take of the cup or take of the bread and remember. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love that has rescued us on purpose for purpose. And a teaching like this, it it strikes me on so many levels. I think about individually, how might I bring change that the world needs? I think about our community. How can we continue to bring change that the world needs? Give Give us big dreams of what we might accomplish through your love demonstrated through our body. We thank you for doing everything necessary to restore relationship with you and to bring hope, to bring healing to this world which all too often can feel so, so broken. So as we, as we approach the table and we remember the body that was broken and the blood that was spilled. I pray that we would once again say yes to your invitation to be the people of God in the here and now. So we thank you. We bless you in the matchless name of your son, our savior, our Lord, our King, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, you may come.
Friends, would you stand? And I'll close us with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we celebrate your goodness to us. We thank you for Jesus. I pray that moving forward from today, we would not only continue to make him look beautiful in our culture, but you would even help us to dream bigger dreams, to bring bigger change. So we bless you, we thank you, we love you. It's in his name that we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week.